1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. With roots in a workshop at the University of Copenhagen in 2012, Emotions and Christian Missions brings together scholars from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, England, the US, Germany, and Denmark. Through a set of wide-ranging essays, the authors collectively tackle a major question. How were emotions conceptualized and practiced in Christian missions from the 17th to the 20th centuries? Case studies take up sites in North America, the Philippines, India, China, Congo, in order to show how emotional practices such as prayer, tears, shouting, and feelings of joy or frustration shaped relationships between missionaries, prospective converts, and supporters at home. I'm pleased to welcome one of the volume's editors, Claire McCliskey, to NBIR. She joins us from New South Wales, where she is a research fellow at Griffith University in Brisbane. Hello and welcome. Thank you, Hilary. My first question for you is how did the idea of this book and the conference that preceded it come about?
0: Well, um, I was working at Copenhagen University at the time and um, I got to know a colleague called Karen Valgora who became my co-editor and she was the first person I'd ever met who was working on Christian missions and missionaries, but also really interested in um, the theory of emotions and and in particular how missionaries practised and expressed um, emotions and also attempted to use uh, emotions in their work. So we had many fruitful conversations and when I was awarded my postdoc in 2012, the first thing I wanted to do was get together some other scholars in the area so that we could sort of sit down and, and. Really try to get a, a broad idea of how this might have played out across um, geographical and chronological um, borders. So we we did that, um, and and Daniel Medina, who uh, was a post uh, oh, sorry, a postgraduate student at the time at Copenhagen University, um, attended that workshop because he was actually working on some sources that were very interesting, um, and so he became involved in editing as well.
1: I realize that you do a lot of things, but this is new books and religion. So I was wondering if you could step back a bit and give us a sense of how you came to study, you yourself, the history of religion specifically.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I was really interested when um, when I started to think about what sort of um, PhD I'd like to write. And this is back in 2004. Um, I was really interested in the multiple ways in which relationships played out on colonial frontiers, specifically in Australia, which is where I um, come from and, and also where I was about to start my PhD. And initially I wanted to look at different case studies. I, I thought I'd look at um, an, a protector of Aborigines, so a sort of official governmental figure. I'd look at a squatter. Um, I'd look at a, a missionary, um, and and I'd, I'd look at several other figures. Um, when I got to the missionary archives, and this was I was working on the Loga mission um, in New South Wales uh, in the late 19th century, I, I was just overwhelmed. There was so much material there, and so much more than I had been able to find on any of the other figures I've, I'd been looking at. And I think I, I had a family connection as well. My, my grandmother was very religious, and um, that affected. Our whole family, um, and made me very curious about what attracted people to, I guess, not, not just the sort of everyday practices of religion, but actually changing your life and, and moving countries for, um, a belief. So, so I was attracted probably because I had that, that family history, but also because, um, the archives were just so rich in possibilities that I thought I'd be able to answer lots of my questions, which I couldn't necessarily answer in some of the other colonial archives.
1: And so when you started that project, were you already interested in the history of emotions, or was that something that came later?
0: That came later. Um, It really arose out of the archives. Um, And this particular couple who ran Maloga Mission for 14 years, um, they had a series of love letters that they'd written to each other before they started the mission, 118 letters that have survived, so there were probably more, um, that they wrote, in a six-month period, and that was where they really negotiated um, their future relationship and, in fact, the role that the mission would play in it Um, because it was a deal-breaker for the the woman, Janet Matthews. She didn't want to marry Daniel unless he would commit to starting a mission with her.
1: Oh, really? Um, Yes. I thought you were going to say the opposite, that she was really (laughs) – she was not sure that that's where she wanted to go.
0: No, that that was his – But it was very interesting because, of course, they talked about their feelings, their their emotions for each other, for the Aboriginal people that they both, I mean, he knew them well because he lived on the frontier, she didn't, but she imagined them in a certain way and she imagined that she had this very strong love for them, or she did feel this love for them, which she thought was uh, enough of a motivation to to devote her life to them um, and Daniel's life um, because... (laughs) Of course, he wanted to marry her, so he he in fact agreed to becoming a missionary, setting up a mission with her, and um and that was sort of through his love for her. Um, so from then on in, I was very sensitive to questions about emotion because I realised that there was a lot more going on here than um than I'd realised.
1: Yeah, what power there, you know, then the next time that I ask my partner to take out the trash, and he tells me I'm asking too much, I'll say, well, <laughs> let me tell you what I could be asking, <laughs> could send you to Australia to do a mission. What um, can you tell us a little bit actually about that mission that they started? I mean, what religious background? They're Christians. But what background were they coming from? What period are you talking about here?
0: Yes, so the mission was founded in 1874, um, and they were quite unconventional at the time in Australia, but I think also globally um, because they weren't attached to a mission society. They were two individuals um, from different denominations. So, Janet had been brought up a Baptist,
1: mm.
0: but her father was uh, a missionary to seamen, um, and he'd founded the Seamen's Mission in um, Sandridge in Melbourne, and. He ran an ecumenical mission, so she, although she was Baptist, she had this very ecumenical approach um, from her father, and Daniel Matthews, um, her husband, was a Methodist, and he'd been brought up by a, in he's from Cornwall um, and emigrated as a child, as as Janet had, they both emigrated to Australia um, as children, and he'd also been brought up in this very particular environment in colonial Victoria, where in fact a lot of these nonconformist denominations were having to work together um, so he was part of the the band of hope um, and he he ran sunday schools and so they both had this ecumenical emphasis which meant that when they when they set up their mission they set it up in an ecumenical ecumenical fashion so they did not attach themselves to any particular church or any particular mission society and rather they relied on private relied on private donations to um, their mission.
1: As you were saying, I mean, there's this emotional attachment that they feel um, both to each other and to the Aboriginal people, at least an imagined emotional attachment, certainly, even before they've met them. Maybe you can help our listeners who are not familiar with the study of emotion, get a better sense of it. Um, what is the study of emotion? How does one define it, if possible? And how does one do it? How does one study emotion?
0: Mm, those are very good questions. Um, so, what is the study of emotion? I guess um, for those of us lucky enough to have texts which are rich in uh, emotives, which is a term that uh, a theorist called William Reddy has come up with, which he means um, he uses to describe emotion words. So, words um, that have to do with emotion, they might be words like love, hate, anger. Mm. Um, but there there are other words that are associated with emotion as well, which are more subtle. So so if if you have sources that are rich in in, in this sort of language, then um, really part of the work that we do is is a very close reading to um, attempt to see how historical actors are using these terms, what they mean by them. A very important part of the history of emotions is trying to trace the, the shifts in meaning of different emotions um over time. So we can't assume from the 21st century perspective that the word love had the same connotations in the late 19th century as it has now. And in fact, for the missionaries I have worked on, um, usually they're talking about Christian love. They're talking about a very specific um formation of love which isn't often referred to outside um Christian or missionary circles today. So so you have to be very careful and sensitive to um how historical actors are using these terms. So so we do close readings of texts. We attempt to um, contextualise these emotion words or emotives um, through research into how uh, different um, theorists or um, often etiquette uh, Guides are are used because they often talk about behaviour and how you should and should not behave and which emotions you should display and which not. But in the case of missionaries, it's often more um, the sorts of uh, religious tracts which describe the appropriate behaviours that that, that can be useful. Um, Also, some people are lucky enough if, if they're looking at a missionary society, then there are missionary training manuals, which which also might describe these things. So it's really about putting these in context. Um, what are emotions? That's uh, a very very big question. Um, there's some recent work um, by Monique Shear who builds on Pierre Bourdieu's practice theory, and she likes to um, to think about emotions as practices. So um, they 're not just things that happen inside you but rather they're things that are cultivated over time so we learn to understand and experience emotions through the the ways that we think and act and talk and and the, the practices that we have around emotions that that are built up over time um, it's it's a very difficult question I mean there are lots of different definitions of emotion right. and we have tried to define emotion as such ourselves in the introduction to the book um, that we've just edited because we thought, in fact, all of the authors are coming at it from slightly different perspectives, so we let them develop their own theories or, or definitions.
1: Right, but that deep context that you were talking about before is clearly associated with that because you might have different notions of of what emotion constitutes or what those practices constitute depending on which site each of the authors in the book is working on.
0: That's quite right. And I think that's really important that these things are historically specific, the way we understand our emotions, um, and not just historically, but as you say, geographically and culturally specific. So, um, And even language, you know, language has enormous effect. William Reddy, again, has done a lot of work on, on how, in fact, the act of verbalizing an emotion can change. The way we, we experience that emotion, solidify it, you know, kind of limit it to some extent, but also um, make it more sort of rigid, or, or you know, that, that suddenly it's encapsulated in a word. And so, when you say "I hate you," suddenly that feeling um, may change within you because of the act of saying it. So, it's really important to um, to think about. Well, different languages have different words for emotion. Different different cultures obviously have different ideas about. Um, what sort of emotions exist? Let alone what sort of emotions should be um, expressed in different circumstances. So, um, really, these things are very specific, and, and I think, yeah, providing that context and, and leaving your definition maybe quite open, and seeing then what what your sources can tell you, and whether it's appropriate to talk about emotional practices or emotional styles, emotional regimes. There are there are many different theories that have been proposed. Um, so so it's really, I think, I like to be led by the archives and um, led by the historical context um, in terms of how I um, theorize.
1: I noticed from your introduction, and, and you just brought this up as well, that you, know, you don't impose a definition of emotion on all of the chapters that offers emotion as one kind of construct. So I was curious on that note, whether you found the authors, given how many backgrounds the scholars come from, how many places, Mm -hmm. did you find that as you came around the table, as it were, you were bringing quite similar kinds of assumptions or ways of thinking? Or was there a regional difference in terms of your approaches, in terms of the various things that scholars who are working in, for example, German or or, uh, Danish are bringing that differ from the Anglo and Anglo-American scholars?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, unfortunately, not all of the people who have ended up in the collection were around the table. So mm-hmm. it's it's a metaphorical table when, when I start to talk now about differences um, because, and then also, unfortunately, not all of the people who were at the, the symposium um, sort of were able to contribute or ended up being included in the final collection. So so, I can say from, from what happened at the symposium that um, it was sort of a combination of, um, of trends. One was that those of us who had read a lot of the same theories um, and, and the literature on the history of emotion that's been developing over the last 20 years, um, I think we were all drawing from a similar body of ideas um, and that's not to say that there was consensus because there is really no consensus in the literature but we, I think we all had a common understanding and what was interesting and wonderful then were the people who hadn't uh, been so well grounded in that literature were coming with often ideas which were much more shaped by by the work that they'd been doing and the long engagement that they had in their specific fields and, and so I think maybe that was more of a distinction um, between those of us who'd enmeshed ourselves in theory and, and the others who were coming from a more sort of archival um, basis. But I do think that, uh, yes, generally I would say that there's a tendency in the Anglo um, and American world to, in um, Australia, I'd include in this as well, to draw on a specific set of theorists and, for example, in Germany they, they have quite a different canon um, of of often German philosophers um, and theorists who, who they might be drawing on mm. um, in addition to or instead of, and that's that's a wonderful kind of cross-pollination when you bring those two groups together. Um, and, I mean, I have to say we, we didn't have Maria Cecilia Holt at the symposium as such, but I have um, met her now in person at a more recent conference I organised, and um, she's coming from a theological background and the richness that that brings. Um, Because it's a whole different body of of work, often, often again, um, on emotions, but not something that, that all of us were familiar with. So, yeah, I I think in a way it's, it's more where our brains have been in terms of the theories we've been reading, the archives we've been immersed in than necessarily our own cultural backgrounds.
1: Right. Yeah were there, the metaphorical table, were there, as you were gathered around the table also, <laughs> were there discussions about the kinds of challenges, maybe some pitfalls um, to studying emotion?
0: Definitely. Definitely. Um, and I think even those of us who've been doing it for a while, and would maybe call ourselves historians of emotion, um, we, we recognise that, that there are pitfalls too. Um, but Perhaps that's also, I mean, this is a thing in in the field of historical inquiry, um, there are always unknowns. So, so one common kind of concern about the study of emotions is that emotions are somehow more ephemeral, um, harder to kind of pin down um, than other historical kind of uh, influences or forces and how can we ever know what someone actually felt um and so this was something that that came up at the symposium um but of course all all we have is the record of those feelings whether it's um a person's own description somebody else's description um in words or perhaps um pictorial depictions of of faces of bodies um expressing emotions or affect in different ways Um, and that's really all we have in the historical record anyway, of thoughts, of theories, of, um, actions. It's, it's all, we, we have descriptions. Um, so working from that basis, I think, um, I think for the, for those at the symposium who hadn't looked much at emotions before and him, who were maybe a little bit worried that they had gone out on a limb, um, because, because it seemed to them that emotions were less reliable somehow than, than other, um, historical phenomena. I think as during the process of, um, discussion and then editing and review I I think people became a lot more confident those who who weren't sort of maybe maybe so so confident to begin with um actually developed um their their certainties around the fact that this in fact was a valid area of inquiry um and of course some of the people in the collection have been have been working on this for a long time and 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 so didn't (laughs) Have, have those concerns, even though, of course, I think we all recognize that there are limits to, to what we can say um, about how historical actors felt in the past, but we can certainly talk about how they wrote and um, how they described their own and others' emotions.
1: Maybe rather than talking about challenges, we could talk about some of the things that the study of emotion then brings. I mean, what does it bring to the history of missions that has previously been overlooked?
0: Well, that was something that um, we we wanted to look at in a in a holistic sense because, of course, we all have our our own case studies which we think, okay, well, this this really shows um, a new aspect of, say, the particular dynamics um, in colonial Australia um, that just looking at at missions um, in maybe more traditional um, social history, cultural history. Um, Maybe even religious history ways, you know, wouldn't wouldn't bring up. Um, but, but when we all got together, we sort of were really excited because we thought we might be able to sort of extend our insight um, into into what emotions could bring. And I, I think one one of one of the things that really became evident as we all kind of presented our our different case studies um, was just the the wonderful kind of ways in which looking at emotion. Can open up interpersonal relations and um, allow us to do more of what we've already been trying to do through through social history, through cu- cultural history, and and you know it's sort of a history from below um, where we're, we're trying to not just look at at what the great figures of history in some cases in, in some. Um, depictions of mission mission history this would be the missionaries that not what just what they set out to do but actually what happened on the ground and how they had to negotiate how they um, were often frustrated um, how indigenous peoples or the peoples they set out to convert um, in fact um, had a, a lot of uh, Room to negotiate uh, to, to different extents in different contexts, and 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 how they could use. Um, sometimes, you know, they didn't have much political power, they didn't have much physical power, but the, in the within the realm of emotions, within the realm of interpersonal relations, um, sometimes there there is the ability. There's the ability to withhold affection, to withhold love, um, to you know uh, negotiate on that level, and I, I think that really. Um, is quite exciting because it just it provides an, another way in which we can kind of unpack what are often quite formulaic um, descriptions of, of mission life that you would find in, in mission reports um, or even missionary letters and you know, they're really um, genres these um, these types of writing. So I, I think by paying attention to emotions, you can you can start to look more carefully at those aspects.
1: Without asking you to um, speak on behalf of your colleagues, but could you give us maybe a couple examples uh, from the book that strike you in terms of what we've just been talking about, the history of emotions can add to the study of, in this case, missions?
0: Sure. Well, um, in Elizabeth Elborn's um, wonderful chapter um, on the relationship between John Strachan an Anglican clergyman in, in Upper Canada and um, a Mohawk man named uh, Thayen Dennegea or uh, Joseph Brandt as he was known to the British, Elizabeth Elborn I think really shows the importance of, of the emotion of frustration within this relationship and because the, the texts which were produced by both the missionary and Joseph Brandt, um, his convert, um, are so uh, sort of that they've they've really become to be very um, influential and taken as um, sort of evidence of particular trends in in the history of mission in in Upper Canada. I, I think what she really does is shows how by looking at, at the emotions that under underlay these texts um, that motivated them and that that influenced the ways, for example, that John Strachan portrayed Joseph Brand um, after he had sort of rejected Strachan um, really give us a much more um, nuanced view of, of, of what these texts are doing. So um, I guess really helping us to question sort of uh, accepted versions of, of history, which often have been defined by the missionaries, although in this case Joseph Brandt himself also wrote a book, which, which um, you know, became influential. But but really, just helping us to complicate our idea of, of, of how these interactions took place. And and um, of course, you know, a lot of these missionaries they sacrificed enormous amounts, um, their own lives, their their own resources, um, in order to pursue their mission. But at the same time, you can see um, within that ideal of noble sacrifice when when it did not achieve the goals that um, that they hoped it would, um, there's an enormous potential there for, for exasperation, for despair, for melancholy, as another author in the collection explores. And, um, and that these emotions were, in fact, just as important as as the kind of more, more noble emotions such as love and hope and compassion um, that the missionaries perhaps preferred to write about themselves.
1: So maybe you could give uh, listeners a sense of what you wrote about, because you have this fantastic chapter with the stories of Barong and Papa, two young people who, you know, you're talking before about this idea of soft power. You didn't use that term, but sort of the kind of power that missionized people might be able to assert by withholding certain kinds of emotions. And I think Borong and Papa are... Good examples of that. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about them and how emotion plays into the relationship between them and uh, the missionaries who made contact with them.
0: Sure. Um, so Buram and Papa are two um, sort of teenage um, individuals who were who both uh, approached by missionaries, or in the case of Papa, it's the missionary, Hans Eel, in Greenland, um danish missionary in the early uh 18th century claims that in fact papa approached him so so anyway there these two young people who make contact with missionaries and um and both end up living with the missionaries for a period and and becoming helpers to them um papa was 12 when he made contact with um Hans Eel, the Danish missionary, um, and Burong was fifteen when she made contact with Richard Johnson, who was the first um, Anglican chaplain to Australia. And um, although he didn't call himself a missionary, he in fact behaved often as if as if he was one. He was very interested in um, going beyond his remit of, of being chaplain to the convicts and um, and the soldiers, and in fact making contact with Aboriginal people and trying to teach them about um, the gospel. So both of these young people. Um I think really negotiated their relationships with the missionaries um in quite interesting ways you you can see there's there's so many power differentials um which would suggest that that these young people really didn't have much room to move so so they're they're a lot younger than the missionaries um they are in in colonial situations where Although it's very very early on for both of them, so these are the first missionaries to to Australia and Greenland, um, respectively. But it's, it's already become apparent that um, you know that, that the colonisers, the British and the Danish, um, have superior firepower. That they um, have superior sort of technology, and and that, that things are going to be difficult for the indigenous people who who are living in that area. But but in both cases, I think that there's a real sense in which, in the archival descriptions of Burong and Papa's behaviour, they actually um, manage to sort of stake their own claims and, and, and influence proceedings, um, at least in part, in order to to get what they want out of the situation, really. And for Papa, that seems to be knowledge he's really interested in learning about Christianity and learning about European ideas and technology, and, um, and he he actually converts to Christianity quite early on um, and becomes a helper to the mission and, um, and and is up until his death in a smallpox epidemic um, six years later. Boorong, on the other hand, this young uh, Aboriginal woman, a um, Garmaragal woman in Sydney, um, she seems to be much more interested in, in her role as a negotiator, between her own people and, and the Europeans. And she's not the only person fulfilling this role in early colonial Sydney. But um, she's certainly, Richard Johnson says that, you know, he's, he's managing to, to um, make progress with her and teaching her to write and read and teaching her the gospel. Um, but through her actions, in fact, Burong shows later that, although perhaps she did have some connection with, with Richard Johnson and there seems to be an affection there. She she lives with him and his wife. Um, but, in fact, her, her deeper loyalties are to her own people and she ends up leaving the Johnsons and going back to her own people um, and, in, in that way, refusing the emotional investment that, that Johnson had made in her and the hopes that Johnson and the other colonists had that she would somehow provi- provide a bridge between the two cultures um, and allow them... To, to have a sort of conciliation, as they called it, where they, they would feel that, that they had come to, to their position of power in, in this, um, colonial society in a sort of a just way. Whereas, in fact, the Aboriginal people w- were not about to give up their land, um, so easily. And so, in fact, uh, what resulted was, was a lot of conflict and violence. But I, I think it was, it's very interesting to compare these two because while Papa embraces, um, Christianity, the missionary, the mission, and becomes a missionary to his own people, and burong refuses, ultimately, um, the mission, the missionary Christianity, and returns to her own people. There are, in fact, I think a lot of similarities in in the way that these young people st- sort of start to, um, to negotiate their positions.
1: You were talking earlier about the importance of, historically contextualizing these emotions and not assuming that emotions that we understand in the 21st century were the same for these historical actors. And there's this moment that I found so fascinating when you're describing Burong, which is where Richard Johnson says, she's happy. And you unpack that idea of happiness. Could you tell us a little more historically, what would it mean to say that Burong was happy in this period?
0: Mm, That's a really good question, because the the idea of happiness, that the word happy itself was undergoing changes at at that time in the the late 18th century and um, sort of throughout the medieval period. um, So there's a great article on this topic um, by Darren McMahon, um, which he calls From the Happiness of Virtue to the Virtue of Happiness. He was really looking at the way in which um, from, from... Ancient Greeks onwards and and right up through the medieval period, um, happiness was really as, thought of as a byproduct or the end goal that would result from a virtuous life. So in ancient Greece, this was this was associated with, with Greek virtues or the, the Greek ideas about virtue. But in the credit, Christian tradition, then um, became associated with ideas about Christian virtue. So so that um, being happy was something that that you might um, experience, I mean, most likely in the afterlife, if you had lived a virtuous life on earth, then, then you might um, aspire to happiness in the afterlife. Um, as the sort of 16th and 17th century progressed, um, these ideas started to, to um, it, it started to, to become, uh, believed that it was in fact more possible to experience happiness um, on earth but but still, this was the result of virtue. This was this was still something that you know, if 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 you were a good and um, and kind person, that that in fact you, you might be described as happy. Um, later, though, um, in during the Enlightenment, um, ideas about happiness were really put through the same sort of um, analytical, I guess, um, under the same scrutiny as as many other religious ideas, and and there was this separation. Of, of the idea of happiness from the idea of religious virtue. So around the time when Richard Johnson is writing about Burong being happy, um, you have this this move inspired by um, John Locke and other other philosophers who, who had in fact begun to, to think of happiness as something that could be um, experienced by humans regardless of, of virtue so, so that they, they weren't just happy um, because they were good but in fact they could be happy um, just just by um, virtue of, of perhaps being lucky. This was another association, um, or, or in fact, that this was sort of an emotional state that was um, unconnected to to inner virtue. Um, so, so when um, this is this colonist Bradley who described Burong as happy, but but Richard Johnson also at different times talks about happiness. Um, this is the question I had, well, what did they actually mean? Were they implying that she was in some way virtuous? She had certainly been a great help to the colonists. She had, had in fact, um, as Johnson wrote, you know, she, she displayed some interest in, in learning to read and write and, and learning about the gospel. So so was it a description of her as virtuous? Was it a description of her perhaps as, as lucky? Because, I mean, certainly some of these colonists did believe that they were bringing civilization, religion, um, to, to the Aboriginal people, um, of Australia and that the Aboriginal people of Australia should be grateful for this, um, and that they were perhaps, you know, um, lucky in that sense that, that they had this opportunity to learn about, um, European civilization. Um, or was this in fact just a, a, a more, um, Modern um, version of the word "happy" um, in the way that we think of um, happiness—that that they they just thought that Burong was in fact independently um, experiencing an emotion. And in fact, this this description was when she was with her her people, um, and and was this in fact a description of, of of just her her delight to be with her people. So, because they were so interested in whether Burong could communicate European values and European ideas to. To her people, um, this was a really important moment because they w- they were sort of trying to work out um, is 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 she happy in the sense that she's providing a model of how an Aboriginal person might feel um, when exposed to the gospel, when when exposed to Christianity, and and communicating that to her country people in order to help them um, to to learn about and embrace this new religion, or, or was this in fact just just a happiness um, that perhaps was more due to luck as they saw it or or in fact um an internal state um, that she experienced being with her people so uh, I don't think I necessarily answered that I, I think I actually came to the conclusion that that they probably were thinking of all of those things they were hoping that that she might be co- going to communicate um, something of the benefits of of what they saw of the benefits of European contact um to her people but but that they probably were also aware of these other meanings of happy um and, as it turned out, you know she she chose uh, to go back to her people and back to her culture and, and I think um, if we can say that Burong was happy in any way, then, then probably we we, as modern readers would, would say that she was probably happy just, just to be back with with her own.
1: You talk um, also in your chapter, uh, but also in the introduction about this notion of circuits, effective circuits, which is this great term. And you're drawing loosely on, or emotional circuits. You're drawing loosely on other work on affect. Can you give us a sense of what that means? How emotions circulate, in the sense that you're thinking with, for example, the cases of Papa and Burong, or other cases in the book.
0: I mean, I came to this idea of affective circuits um, in part through the work of Sarah Ahmed, who um, who who has written about emotional circuits, affective circuits, um, and she really. Um, sees emotions not as something that sort of um, exists in one person or well up in one person, but that they're relational. That they're it's always um, emotion is, is always moving between, she says, people and other people, people and objects, um, and, and that that emotions have to do with the way out we orient ourselves to the outside world. Um, even the idea of, of something or someone else that's in our head, um, obviously, it can be enough. Um, but, but that that we're that emotions are are moving and she looks at the etymology of of the word um, um, to show that the the idea of motion is in fact part of of the idea of emotion. Um, So by thinking about circuits, I wanted to um, to sort of extend this analysis to to think about the ways in which – and I guess it's it's certainly something that that other theorists have have looked at too – um, but the ways in which emotions can operate in an almost in a, in a circular way, both with it within ourselves, so that there can be what, what you might call a feedback loop. Um, that by experiencing an emotion, by verbalizing that emotion, um, by expressing it to others, or not, um, but but, but the act of recognizing and naming an emotion can intensify the experience of the emotion within an individual. And this is something that um, that Bourdieu again. Has um, has written about in terms of um effective circuits um, such as sort of the the intensification of um of an emotion through perhaps the act of crying um or through the act of smiling um that that we can kind of start off a feedback loop um this is also also something that, of course, happens between people. So between individuals, um, if you see someone else crying, such as in my paper when I, I write about Papa um, at his conversion and, and the missionary Hansel describes him crying, um, tears of joy and devotion, um, which then elicit tears of joy and devotion in in the audience who are present um, because they are moved by his emotion. Um, and the question of whether that emotion comes back to the originator. Um, is sort of you can't always uh, say, but I, I think the idea of, of intensification um, of emotion, both within people and between people, um, was quite useful. Especially when I started to reflect on the fact that both these missionaries I was looking at seemed to be to be um, attempting to to provoke this very sort of kickstart this 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 sort of circuit um, in in their converts. And I wondered whether in fact this um this was a sort of technique you might say, um that in fact emotion was so useful um because it it did have this um potential to to kind of uh both transfer between individuals um, but also to to kind of intensify um a sense of feeling and 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 they hoped a sense of belief, which of course for, for um evangelical Christians um of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, you know belief was very much linked to feeling. And I, th- I think that's probably still true to say of um, of evangelical Christianity. But it's, it's a very important part um, of of an individual's connection with God is is that felt aspect.
1: The book really looks at a lot of different kinds of Christians. I mean, evangelicals in that pietist uh, kind of tradition are, are obvious ones perhaps, but uh, there's Catholics, uh, Anglicans, obviously Moravians, Presbyterians. In, in what sense did you find across the chapters that there were differences in terms of how religious emotion was conceived in these groups or even contested amongst them?
0: Yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, so I, I should clarify because I'm using evangelical in, in quite a specific way when, when I talk both in the book and, and now um, about evangelicals. And that's really um, the sort of very basic idea of, of an evangelical being anyone who, who wants to go out and proclaim the gospel. So it's not just, um, you know, the way that, that we often now talk about evangelicals in terms of specific denominations um, in the 21st century or even, of course, in the 19th century. Um, you know, the, the small evangelical um, was, was often used for, for a sort of whole range of nonconformists and the big evangelical just for anglican evangelicals but but when we talk in in the book about evangelicals we're really talking about anyone who who goes out and evangelizes who sees that as a core part of their belief um so on one hand i would say that 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 is something that links all of the denominations that we look at in the book you're right there are many different you know catholic protestant um kind of what, what is usually a divide, and unfortunately we only have one chapter on on um, Catholic missionaries, but still I thought it was really important that we did have at least one, um, both because there are very important denominational differences um, between between how different groups conceive of emotion, but also because in fact, when we're looking at missionaries who who are sort of um, going out and, um, and motivated really by their beliefs and by their felt um, connection, um, with those beliefs, they they do have a lot in common. So, I mean, one good example of the differences is, is Monique Shear's um, article, where she really uh, writes about these um, German American Methodists who who um, sort of the, the German immigrants in America are um, affected and and, and um, convert to Methodism through through the, the big. Methodist revivals in the US, um, then they go back to Germany and bring back this particular brand of Methodism, which, you know, is not viewed kindly by the by right. the, um, Lutheran establishment and, in fact, even by other Methodists in, in Germany. You know, there's real kind of um, tensions about the very emotional way or the very particular emotions that they use. They're to shouting, to, right? they shouting. That's right. And so this, of course, is, is an enormous cause for tension. Um and partly, I think, because, and this is something Monique really makes clear, and I think she's right, um, there's this real suspicion of emotion. Um, and I think it's partly a sort of enlightenment um, uh, development where where there's sort of this idea of a separation between rationality and emotionality. Um, and that, you know, many of these pietist groups have this idea that. You know, in fact, um, while the emotions are important, they they need to be controlled in in very particular ways, and, and um, you know, limits placed on on how uh, loud or um, overt um, particular emotions are expressed. Um, that said, though, I, I have another article um, which compares the Moravian and the um, and the Lutheran missionaries in in Greenland. Um, and that was published in the Journal of Religious History. Or actually, will be just, just in a few months now. Um, but I was surprised to find that I mean the Moravians are renowned for being um, the most extreme, really, of all the denominations in terms of their um, emotional expression and and their appeals to to the sort of the blood and the tears of Jesus Christ and and wanting to to curl up and, and live inside his side wound and, and, I mean, all these amazing statements which which Zinzendorf goes through sort of a period, this is the, the Moravian leader, a period of, of really embracing. But but you can see the influence of, of this kind of approach to emotion um, for a long time afterwards, even though the, the Moravian Brotherhood sort of moves officially away from this rhetoric. Um, but despite the fact that they have, they're really renowned for for this extreme emotion. Um, emotional um, expression and, and they're converts too um, and, and the Lutherans really criticised them in Greenland for, you know, um, spreading false doctrine and teaching the Greenlanders um, sort of all these emotional practices that they don't think are really um, appropriate. In fact, when you look at Hans Eel, um, as, as I did in that article I've also done in this chapter in this book, um, he is using emotions you know, extensively, his, his um, drawing in His descriptions on his own emotional experience. He's, he's really interested in how um, the Greenlandic converts are experiencing emotion. And um, so, even and he's though he's a Lutheran, he's a Lutheran, yeah. yeah. So, it's, even though he has a, a different emotional style and he's very critical of the Moravians, um, in fact, uh, he's doing some very similar things. Um, in terms of how he uses emotion um, to the Moravians, so yeah, I, I think that the differences are definitely important and need to be explored. You know, that's that's where comparative work is so useful because you can actually um, get in and, and and really look maybe at a similar um, geographical, chronological sort of setting and and um, and then see well within this how do the different denominations work? But um, but I, I guess I have been surprised again and again by um. The fact that really these missionaries are facing similar problems and and often emotions are a key um, to either helping to ameliorate the situation or sometimes really make it much worse. Um, The missionaries can't control um, or can't can't channel their own emotions into kind of uh, constructive engagements with with local peoples.
1: Speaking in a, a more general sense again, I suppose, I'm wondering if there's any other examples like happiness that we were just talking about. These Christian emotions, or or other emotions that are undergoing changes in this period, or that perhaps our 21st century listeners would recognize the words, but actually would interpret them very differently.
0: Well, I think Maria Cecilia um, Hot's article on um, on melancholy or ac- acedia, which of course is is a, a much older term, um, is very interesting in that way because. I think if we, we think of mel- melancholy today as as being, you know, a, a sense of sadness, a sense of longing, um, something that's that's very individual, very personal, but not necessarily spiritual. Um, but the the seventeenth um, uh, century uh, Augustinian who who she um, looks at um, Saint Augustine, and and then the Jesuit who who then kind of attempts to. Um, rehabilitate, I guess, at the um, uh reputation. When they're writing about melancholy, they're, they're really writing about it in this quite specific spiritual way, and they're drawing on this much earlier notion of Assidia, which is a, a kind of a spiritual despair, a deep. I think it's the noonday demon who comes to tempt men and um, at, you know away from God and. And into this kind of apathy and, and despair, um, and so, so Maria's chapter is is wonderful because um, when she writes about Juan Jose Delgado, this eighteenth century Jesuit missionary attempting to sort of rehabilitate um, the reputation of Saint Agust- Agustin, she shows how this was this wasn't just a kind of personal um, uh, sense of compassion that Delgado might have had for. For Agostini, that you know, he suffered from melancholy. Therefore, we can exclude him. Oh, sorry, we can excuse him. Um, you know, his his sort of awful um, diatribe against the, the Filipinos, um, but rather, um, this this is a, a spiritual um, condition. This is a very grave kind of spiritual condition um, of ascidia or, or melancholy that, in fact, is is an example of of really the. The dangers um, that and the pitfalls of, of mission work um, for missionaries and and you know really I mean he, he makes it into a, a much broader concern that in fact we all need to he says you know be, be concerned about this and of course I mean he's he's right um, this this is something that I mean colonial situations where missionaries are facing all sorts of challenges to their own faith um, to their authority um, and and all sorts of difficulties that that in fact this is something that that the missionary societies and, and churches should be focusing on. And, and I think the way that Holt sort of identifies this as, as not just a kind of emotion um, that one individual feels but, but part of a much broader colonial malaise and, and something that, in fact, at least some within the church recognised as being very serious um, and a connection there between the colonial context and the difficulties faced by missionaries this is made really explicit. You know, there are many examples of missionaries criticizing colonial authorities, but I think this is a wonderful um, one because it focuses specifically on, on the emotions that, that being in this difficult situation might evoke. Um, and so, I mean, while I think it's, it's easy for a modern reader to empathize through Holt's analysis um, and through Delgado's um, sort of uh, rehabilitation of, like a Adding that spiritual dimension really um, makes us see why, why Delgado thought this was so important um, and, and helps us understand the kind of full um, complexity of, of what these missionaries were trying to um, sort of justify to themselves and to others um, at the time. So, yeah, I think that's another example.
1: Right. For one of those emotions that actually becomes quite an embarrassment or certainly something that needs to be explained later. This is not the ideal emotion that one would hope a holy man was feeling. This no. kind of. So the politics of empire uh, is, of course, never absent. And you've alluded to it throughout our conversation. We're talking about the history of missionization and colonialism, of course. So what are some of the ways that the political is foregrounded in these essays?
0: Well, I think we all do it in quite different ways. Um, I mean, I have to say that there is sort of uh, one exception. I mean, m- most most of these um, chapters do take place in um, what we would think of as, you know, classic New World colonial situations. And, of course, Monique Shear's chapter um, is a bit different in that way in that it's looking at um, her German-American missionaries back to Germany. Um, so it's almost like a return from empire. Um a reverse mission, um, but but a very early version of um, of that. But still, of course, the the political um, structures are playing a very very important part, and that sense of um, of an unequal dynamic between the metropolitan centre and the colonial periphery, and then within the colonial um, periphery, a sort of unequal dynamic between colonisers and colonised. Um, so, I think um, in t- in terms of that. Of that power dynamic it, it really was so different in, in so many of these contexts um, that that I think, I think what, what what we do best in terms of um, uh, describing um, that the dynamic is, is really to do with the specificities um, because you know if, if you 're looking at very early colonial situations as I do in my chapter on Greenland and australia. Um, you know, this, this is a situation where authority is not entirely established yet and there's there's more room for negotiation. Um, if you're looking at situations which, which are more developed um, and, you know, perhaps um, Maria Cecilia Holt's um, chapter is, is one of these where the, the Spanish have already been um, in the Philippines for some time before Delgado makes his, his intervention to, to attempt to sort of rehabilitate um, Augustine. Sanikistan, it's they're quite different situations um and of course the, the three chapters um in the final section on um missionary literature and um and missionary supporters um are very interesting because they're all looking at a later period where really power dynamics have become much more entrenched and and missionaries are much more kind of um global and um and almost business like concern. We have large mission societies sending out um, large numbers of missionaries and producing large volumes of, of publications. And so, you know, what the sense you get through those publications is that um, there there are much more rigid power structures, which of course was, was not necessarily the case on the ground, but um you certainly can say that that with uh, with time, um, these political structures often did become more entrenched and missionaries had learned to work out their their relationships to the colonial state in different ways. Um, but, but often, certainly in the case of Australia, for example, these, these links became ever firmer um, as a colonial state became more and more interested in controlling the movement of Aboriginal people. And um, so... It does really depend on context, but I would say that there's there's a big difference as well between these early, more fluid um sort of colonial settings and and what happens later in the sort of late nineteenth century, especially.
1: Given the uh, wide range of essays, both historically, as we've just been talking about, I mean um but also in terms of the places, but as you said, there is something that draws together these evangelical, small e, evangelical Christians who are going out into these mission situations. So what are the main themes of the volume? What ideas do you want readers to take away from this volume of essays?
0: That's a great question. I mean, I'll fall back to begin with on on the structure of the book, which is it's structured into three different sections, and the first is on emotional practices, and I think um, three chapters that we have there, which is a really fantastic chapter by Laura Stevens on prayer, which I haven't mentioned yet, but um, Monique's um, chapter on shouting, and then um, Danny Medina's chapter on feeling for. Um, the other, uh, in, that case, in his case, feeling for Papuans, um, German missionaries kind of attempting to feel themselves into Papua New Guinean music um, and, uh, and therefore sort of also emotional states. Um, I think they really uh, taken together um, helped me to, to kind of understand what Monique Shear was talking about in she, her first article on, on emotional practices. Is, is a classic um, but but you know really elaborating this idea of the different ways in which people um, over time sort of build up emotional practices that come to influence their emotional lives which come to define and um, inflect um, the ways that they interact with God with each other with converts so so this idea that emotions um, are something that that we do and that we do over time and, and that that build up resonance um over time and um the second section which is on relationships i guess refers back to to the point i made at the beginning of the interview um about just how emotions can help us to to understand um interactions between missionaries and and converts in a much more nuanced way and um and often i i think i think these articles um suggest that they they really um give um, a sense of not necessarily equal agency, but but contested agency, and and you know power moving between individuals in a much more fluid way than perhaps was happening on a political level. Um, but that the, the people in fact did often have the power to to refuse or negotiate um, or manage or, or offer emotions um, in these situations, and and they they help us to kind of complicate our ideas of of what colonial. Um, missions might have been like, and then the, the last section uh, again on, on literature, um, and, um, and and especially looking at mission supporters and, and the relationship between mission supporters, missionaries, and then of course the often the idea of the convert, because of course many mission supporters only ever met um, converts or prospective converts through these texts. Um, I, I think it both sort of supports literature which previously has, has, has really shown qu- quite a sort of rigidity and often a racial rigidity in, in the way that missionaries portrayed um, converts and prospective converts in in their um, publications. And um, Jane Haggis and Margaret Allen's um, 2008 article on um, imperial emotions is, is, is wonderful in the way that it opens up questions about how these publications worked in terms of emotions. Um, but I think what those three chapters at the end of the book also do is, is to sort of complicate the idea of, um, that in fact some missionary supporters were also, um, participants in mission, that the boundaries were more fluid. Um, and Hugh Morrison's chapter on, on children as, as mission supporters and participants, I think really complicates that in a lovely way and, and also brings up the, the question of family and, um, how the metaphor of family was used. Um, by missionaries by mission supporters sometimes you know by 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 converts themselves in order to um, demarcate lines of belonging to to include to exclude um, and and the just the sort of um, metaphor of the family of god and the family of man um, uh, and and the those two metaphors I should say and and the ways in which they interacted um, sometimes in sort of concert and that other times in tension with each other so I guess those, those three kind of um, strains, I think, were, were three things that came out for me really strongly of, of looking at, at at the group of chapters as a whole. And, um, and, I mean, of course, their gender, you know, crops up a lot there in Ungarad Air's um, article on the, the sacrificial female missionary um, and the sacrificial... Uh, native convert, and then that interesting kind of interplay between those two um, stereotypes or, or archetypes, I should say, in missionary literature um, is, is fantastic, a fantastic look at gender in um, the role of gender in mission history.
1: This is a rich field of study, of course. We've just managed to while away an hour talking about it. What are you working on now, more on emotion and missions, or is there something else that, that you're doing?
0: Yes, I, I am actually doing something else now. Um, so I, um, I still am very interested in emotions, and um, I'm still working on on the large project, which uh, is a comparative project of Greenland and Australia, and, and looking in particular on the emotional economies of early missions to those two uh, colonies. But I've the last six months or so um, been working on two uh, special journal issues, um, one for the Journal of Social History and one for um, Social Sciences and Missions. Um, and these both come out of a conference that I held in April in Copenhagen, which was called Colonial Christian Missions and Their Legacies. So um, through my, my work on missions but also the, the places that I've visited um, in pursuit of my research and specifically um, spending a month in Greenland uh, two years ago. I really um, have become more and more interested in, in the contemporary um, legacies of, of these missions, which, you know, I mean, of, often mission is ongoing, but um, you can also then often trace um, sort of specific political, cultural, social, uh, educational, I mean, really all sorts of different um, s- strains in, in the histories of, of um, contemporary uh, countries, whether they're they're sort of post-colonies or, or whether they're still continuing settler colonies, such as, for example, Australia, um, Canada, um, and, and just the, the impact that, that missions had. And I think it's, it's an impact that is often overlooked, um, and especially in Australia where, where we don't like to, um, we for a long time haven't acknowledged the importance of religion in our history because we, we weren't founded as a religious colony and and we um, we don't like to think of ourselves always as particularly religious people. But, um, in fact, uh the influence of, um, of religion has been has been very great here, but but I think all over the world. I mean, especially um, in places where uh, often colonial power was quite quite brutal and quite forceful, and, and often the sort of uh, the legacies of colonialism are seen in terms of um, of secular authorities. But I became really interested in well, what happens when we look at, at the specific legacies of, of missionaries, and they're often to do with education, um, of course, religious practice, um, health, uh, but all sorts of other more, more complex things too—identity, um, um, sort of uh, emotional practice, even. So, so I, I put on this big conference with um, speakers from eighteen different countries. There were fifty-five of us in total, and. Um, and that was supported by the Danish Research Council, which was just wonderful. Um, and, and then I've got 16 articles um, that have come out of that conference, which I'm, I'm putting together in these two different collections. And that's really good fun. I'm learning an awful lot um, about these very diverse um, contexts and um, and also sort of a, a contemporary perspective on, I guess, what I've been studying for a long time and, and enjoyed studying in um in the 18th or 19th century, but but of course, um, I'm, I'm fascinated as to what happens to to these histories, how they're taken up or discarded, how they're remembered or forgotten, memorialised, um, or you know, sort of um, disparaged in contemporary, um, as I say, the post-colonies or or continuing colonies.
1: Well, thank you, Claire, for getting us to think in ways that are both comparative and wide ranging chronologically as well. And those sound like exciting projects and hopefully people listening to this podcast will pick them up. So thank you very much.